What is the Bible about? How would you answer that if someone asked you? There are probably a few answers we could give, but ultimately the Bible is a book about salvation. Three chapters into the Bible, Adam and Eve's sin plunged the world into darkness. And if God hadn't had a plan of salvation to tell us about, well, that would have been it. Why, why give us the Bible? There would have been no future. But wonderfully, God did have a plan of salvation. And that's what every part of the Bible is about in one way or another. Every part of the Bible that you're reading about, in some way it will relate to, to the people who need salvation or to the God who provides salvation. The very name Jesus means God saves. And in these last few chapters of Genesis, we've been hearing a lot about Joseph saving, Joseph saving lives. Joseph, who points us to Jesus more than almost any other Old Testament character except David. And so the message that we're seeing repeatedly in these few chapters is that Joseph saves lives. In chapter 42, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt for the first time, saying, Buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. In chapter 43, Judah argues with his father to let them go back to Egypt with Benjamin so that we may live and not die. In chapter 45, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers saying, God sent me before you to preserve life. And that emphasis of Joseph saving lives continues in this chapter with the people saying in verse 25, you have saved our lives Uh, so it's hard to miss this emphasis on joseph as the one who saves and preserves lives now of course this is all talking about a physical salvation saving people from starvation but if the bible is a book about salvation from sin we should expect to be able to see connections between the physical salvation that Joseph provides here and the spiritual salvation that Jesus provides. Just in the same way that Jesus giving sight to the blind was a a physical healing, but it was more than that because it points to our need for spiritual sight. And nor is Joseph saving his people just significant for what it pictures, but it's significant for what it actually achieves. Because if the nation of Israel, which at this point in history was just those 70 names that we saw a chapter or two ago, if they are wiped out, then Jesus would never have been born. And so everything that's happening in this long account of Joseph is about preserving the family from which Jesus would be born. That's what the whole Old Testament is building towards. And as we've been reminded in recent weeks, it's not just about preserving this bunch of people physically, but preserving them spiritually from the idolatry that surrounded them in Canaan and that they were starting to get sucked into. So the Bible is a book about salvation. 
both about the people who need salvation, i.e. us, everyone, and about the God who provides salvation. Um, With that in mind, uh, we'll look at this section under three headings, saying firstly that without the Saviour, we have no hope. (coughs) Excuse me. Without the Saviour, we have no hope. Seven years is a long time. In a few months, it will be seven years since our family moved to Skinrar. And a lot has changed in those years. Seven years ago, the the Brexit vote hadn't happened yet. Uh, Donald Trump was still a couple of years away from being US president. Uh, We'd never heard of COVID. A lot can happen in seven years. And for seven years, the people of Egypt have been experiencing famine. The verses that we're looking at tonight cover the final years of that time as the people get more and more desperate. The fact that in verse 23, Joseph gives them seed and can talk about what's to be done with the harvest suggests that at that point, they're in the final year of the famine. Remember uh, how God has revealed beforehand exactly how long it will last. So even though the famine is still continuing, they can talk about seed time and harvest because they know it's going to come to an end. But they also know that unless something changes, they're not going to make it to the end of the famine. At the beginning of the seven years, the people had been able to pay for grain with money. But by verse 15, however long this is into the famine, all their money had run out. Then in verse 16, with no money left, the people sell their animals to Joseph instead, their horses, sheep, cows and donkeys. But then that keeps them going for another year. But when that year is over, they have nothing left to offer Joseph in exchange for food. And so they offer in verse 19 that he can make them servants. They have nothing left to give other than themselves and their land. So they say, well, that's what we'll give you. We'll be your servants and a proportion of our crop every year can go to Pharaoh. Now, before we get into the significance of all this for ourselves, maybe you wonder, well, well, is Joseph not just turning the screw a bit here? Is he not taking advantage of people who are absolutely destitute? Why not just give them the grain for free? But of course, that would have brought in other problems. For example, it would no doubt have led to unscrupulous people hoarding grain and selling it to uh, their desperate neighbours around them at exorbitant prices. If this grain had been given away for for free during the seven years, do you think it would have lasted until the end of the famine? In fact, in the ancient world, there just wasn't any concept that you would get something for free. It was universally accepted that you paid your way as long as you had anything to part with. And if in the last resort all you had left was your freedom, then you would pay with that too. Perhaps there are applications that modern governments might seek to draw from uh, these principles. We'll not get into that now. But certainly in the ancient world there was no concept that you would get something for nothing while you were still able to work for it. 
And the people here, they certainly don't think that Joseph is taking advantage of them. They say in verse 25, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So that's what's happening here as the famine drags on and on, as the people get more and more desperate. But what's the significance of it all? How does it all touch down in our lives? Well, surely it's the message that sooner or later we will come to an end of our own resources. Perhaps we think that we have enough in and of ourselves to make it through life and and then in the end that we'll be able to pay our way to heaven. Not financially, uh, probably, although people have thought that in the past, but we'll pay our way to heaven through our good works. Maybe like those in the ancient world, you've never had anything handed to you. You've had to work for everything you have. And you can look back and say, well, I've worked for however many years. I've bought my own house. I've done this. I've done that. But if we take that same attitude to God, then we'll say, well, well, no, thank you. I don't need Jesus. I'm going to pay my own way myself. But sooner or later, we come to an end of our own resources. And the tragic thing is that the so many people realise it too late. They don't realise it until they're standing before God. And it's then that they realise that they owe a debt that they can never pay. Maybe the very reason that you're at church tonight is because you have realised that by yourself you have no hope of getting right with God. Of course that's not true of of everyone who comes to church sadly there there have always been those who will come to churches because they think that they can do it themselves but they come to church more as a backup as a, a little extra thing that might help them get over the line but that's not the attitude of the people in in egypt they have have long since uh given up the the illusion that they can make it themselves because they realize that without the savior they have no hope. They know that they have nothing to offer and unless he provides for them, they will perish. And we all need to get to the same position where we realise that without the Saviour, we have no hope. The people say here in the middle of verse 18, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? It's not a nice feeling to be brought face to face with our desperate need. To be shown that our spiritual bank account, which we perhaps thought was pretty flush, has been in the red from the very beginning and that all that's ever been added to it are more charges the things that we thought were depositing we were depositing in our our spiritual bank accounts were only leading us more into debt it's not nice to be brought face to face with that but without it we won't turn to our saviour And if we haven't already, every single one of us needs to reach the point where we see that we have absolutely nothing left of our own that we can bring to the table. We need to realise that unless we receive mercy, we are doomed. 
We want to make it to heaven in our own steam. We want to, to bring something to the table. But we have to realize that we can't. We can't. Unless we receive mercy, we are doomed. Without the Savior, we have no hope. But then secondly, this evening, we see that salvation brings obligation. Salvation brings obligation. If I had to pick a a key text from this chapter, it would probably be verse 25. Because it's so important for understanding the Christian life. Verse 25, and they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And the order there is so important. It's not that they're saying we will serve you in the hope that one day you will give us food. But rather Joseph gives them the food then and there. And from that moment on they become his servants or technically Pharaoh's servants. And in the exact same way we don't serve God in the hope that he will one day save us. But rather we serve him in light of his amazing goodness to us. We love him because he first loved us. And yet what we want to do as human beings is continually try and turn God's order on its head. Someone will say, well, well, I've gone to church. I'll go to church for 50 years and then God will let me into heaven. Whereas actually the proper order is to say, well, God in his goodness has been so merciful to me in Jesus Christ. And as a result, I will serve him as long as I live with every breath that I have. But his work comes first. What we do and what he calls us to do is only ever in response to what he has done for us. But salvation does bring obligation A loving, joyful obligation. Jesus says his his burden, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So it's it's a joyful obligation, but it is an obligation nonetheless. Maybe we're a bit uncomfortable with the idea of servants, of of the fact that Joseph makes the people servants and that we are called to to serve God and, and described in the Bible as servants of God. But the question has never actually been whether we'll be servants or not. The question has only ever been who are we going to serve? The question is who are we going to serve? As Johnny Cash put it so profoundly and biblically uh, many years ago, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's basically just a a popular exposition of of Romans chapter 6. Before we became Christians, we were slaves to sin. We couldn't do anything but sin. It may have brought temporary pleasure, but in the long term it leads to misery. As Paul says in that chapter of Romans, the end of those things is death. But to become a Christian means to be set free from that slavery to sin. But it doesn't mean being set free to serve ourselves. Serving ourselves might sound good, but it would be miserable. 
but rather we've been set free in order that we might now serve a good and glorious master. Romans 6 again, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so the question that each of us will face every day this week is who are you going to serve? And our calling is clear. Paul tells us, for just as you once presented your members or your bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, present your bodies as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Because salvation brings obligation, an obligation to live for God, not ourselves. And I wonder, could someone tell that from your life? That however you once may have been living, that now you're living for God and not yourself. How did all this play out in practical terms for the Egyptians? Well, in practical terms, it meant that Joseph would take 20% of their yearly produce for Pharaoh. And one of the obligations that our salvation brings is the duty of returning to God a proportion of all that he's given to us. It's even one of our, our membership vows. There were various tithes that God's people were to pay in the Old Testament. Uh, not necessarily all 10%, but uh, the fundamental one was 10% of their produce. I mentioned last week Abraham being blessed by Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Uh, Melchizedek who pictures Jesus and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And that obligation in the words of verse 26 here stands to this day. In fact if anything that obligation has increased rather than decreased because we have so many more privileges than they did. We can see far more clearly what God's salvation looks like. And at a time when people are under pressure financially with petrol prices increasing almost every day, this is an obligation that it would be very easy to slacken off on. And yet salvation brings obligation. God gives us everything. The, the air we breathe, the food we eat, our homes, our families, all come from God. And that's before we even mention eternal salvation from hell. And are we going to begrudge the small percentage he asks us to return to him? <clears throat> the Americans have a great phrase. I, I don't know if we have an equivalent, but they, they talk about nickel and diming someone. So, for example, a company will sell, will sell you a thousand pound phone, but they won't include a charger for free, even though it would hardly cost them anything to do so. But rather they'll nickel and dime you for the price of it and try and make you go and buy one separately for £20. Companies nickel and dime their customers because the bottom line means more to them than anything. But what a thing it would be to try and nickel and dime God, to begrudge the small portion that he asks us to give. In fact, the book of Malachi describes it as robbing God. 
the 20% tax that Joseph imposed on the people was actually very low compared to what surrounding rulers did for people in similar situations. In other countries, from records we have, the people would have been asked to give up between a half and two-thirds. And compared to the cost the people around us are paying for sin, what we are asked to pay is not very much. Whether that's the whether you want to count up the financial cost of, of those who are gambling or drinking or whatever, or the emotional cost of that, or, or the financial cost of materialism, always having to have the latest thing, living beyond your means to keep up with the Joneses. But as Christians, we're set free from all that. And so compared to what, what people around us are, are giving to serve their master, what we are asked to give in service to our master is, is very small indeed. Like Joseph here, Jesus provides us all that we need. Uh, all that we need for salvation, for life, for godliness. Just like Joseph, he promises to bride, provide for our households, our, our little ones as well as ourselves. And the people of Egypt, they don't begrudge Joseph what he asks for. But will the people of God begrudge him for what he asked for? All they felt was gratitude. And as 2 Corinthians 9 tells us, God loves a cheerful giver. The percentage isn't actually the main thing. The main thing is the heart behind it. And yes, people are in, in different situations. Uh, it's not all straightforward, uh, but the big point, salvation brings obligation. So, firstly, without the Saviour, we have no hope. Secondly, salvation brings obligation. Uh, thirdly and finally, saved people don't treat this world like home. Saved people don't treat this world like home. Joseph pictures Jesus in that he brings blessing both to his own people and to the world. And so far today we've been thinking about the blessing that Joseph brought to the land of Egypt. But even in this chapter God's people experience far greater blessings than the Egyptians. Because God was with them in a way that he wasn't with the Egyptians. What happens to the Egyptians in this chapter? Well, they lose. They lose their lands. They and their lands are signed over to Pharaoh. But what happens to the Israelites? They gain. The Egyptians lose, but the Israelites gain. Verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And does not tell us how God can bless us and make us fruitful, even in places we wouldn't have chosen to be. Even in life circumstances we wouldn't have chosen to go through. Remember Jacob's anxiety about leaving the promised land, and he was rightly cautious about leaving the land that God had promised to give to his grandfather Abraham. And yet God's presence and blessing were never limited to a particular place. Yes, God chose to focus his presence in, in certain geographical places at times, but it wasn't as if he was ever limited geographically. 
It's always boggled my mind how you can get those shopping trolleys and if you take them outside the bounds of the supermarket car park they just stop working. Um, maybe someone can explain to me afterwards how they work. But God isn't like that. There, there's nowhere that the child of God can go and find that once they cross a certain boundary God is somehow less powerful. Jonah would find that out later on in the Old Testament wouldn't they? Uh, there wasn't somewhere that he could go and, and God would suddenly be less concerned with what's happening there. And so God can make us fruitful in places that we wouldn't have chosen to be or in life circumstances we would have avoided if we could. We were repeatedly told about Joseph that even when he was facing false accusation and imprisonment that the Lord was with him. Uh, and, and who of us would choose false accusation or imprisonment? And yet the Lord was with him. And well could Joseph say when a second child is born that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It's not home and Joseph knows it's not home but God has made him fruitful there. And what was true of Joseph is now in this chapter true of God's people as a whole. Even at a time of famine, they are fruitful and multiply greatly there. Why does Joseph, a foreigner, rise to second in command in Egypt? Why does this foreign family of Hebrews, why, why are they thriving more than the Egyptians? Because the Lord is with them. Just as he promised Jacob, remember, uh, when Jacob had those anxieties back at the start of chapter 46, God came to him and says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And the Lord has done what he had promised. And as a result, the people know blessing and fruitfulness. Despite all the, the reluctance that, that Jacob had about going there. And God can do the same for us. I'll never forget hearing a missionary, Muriel Ball, talking about what helped her with the thought of raising children in secular, atheistic France with very, very little Christian fellowship. And she shared these words, I think someone had maybe told her, that the best place to bring up your children is at the centre of God's will. The best place to bring up your children is at the centre of God's will. The geographical location is very much secondary. What matters is if we're being obedient to the will of God. What matters is if we're seeking first his children. Because God isn't limited geographically and he's not limited to only blessing people who have straightforward, uncomplicated lives. And so God blesses his people in Egypt. How different Jacob's last 17 years would have been compared to so much that had gone before. He has his, his beloved son back. He has his children around him. He has grandchildren. He, he has all that he needs materially. And yet, and yet, he never forgets that this isn't home. The attractions of Egypt don't turn his head. You hear about people, uh, maybe 
uh, teenagers uh, and they're, they're, they're pretty good at, at football and uh, maybe they, they make it and they, they sign a deal with a professional club but their head gets turned and it doesn't last long. Uh, but Jacob's head isn't turned. He, he doesn't forget where he's from. <coughs> and when the time comes for him to die, he makes Joseph promise not to bury him in Egypt but to take his body back to the promised land and bury it there. Why? Well, not because it would affect his eternal destination, but as a sign that he has died trusting in God's promise. It's not that Jacob doesn't have any hope beyond this world, and so the only thing that he longs for is that his physical remains can be buried uh, beside his father and grandfather, that he can somehow be close to them. Uh, Verse 30 would be better translated as it is in most versions, when I lie with my father's. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. In other words, he has confidence that as soon as he dies, he will be with his fathers. He will be with his grandfather and his father in heaven. Whatever happens to his body. So it's not that he thinks he needs to be buried alongside them. But what a sign that this would be to his family. That he has died in faith. That God would fulfill his promise to one day bring his people back up from Egypt. What a sign this would be to his family that he had never forgotten where his true country was. And so let's be grateful to God for the blessings that he showers down upon us. But let's never forget that this isn't our true home. Let's never act as if this isn't our final destination. And so the Bible is a book about salvation. It tells us That without the Saviour we have no hope. It tells us about the joyful, gratitude-filled obligations that salvation brings. And it reminds us that saved people don't treat this world like home. By God's grace, may those three things mark our lives in the week ahead. Amen. Well, let's now sing about God's salvation, doing so from Psalm number 18. Uh, Psalm 18, it's the last four verses on page 32. So page, page 32, Psalm 18, it's verses 38 to 41. How is God described in verse 38? Saviour. Saviour. And what does he do in verse 39? Well, what does a saviour do? He saves He saves me from my enemies, which for us is the unholy trinity of Satan, sin and death. And how does he save us from these enemies? Well, verse 41, through his anointed king, the word anointed is just our translation of the word Messiah or the word Christ. Uh, That is how God saves us. Through his anointed king, Jesus Christ, who has defeated Satan, sin and death in our place. Setting us free from slavery to Satan and setting us free to joyfully serve him. So Psalm 18, 38 to 41, tune number 91, tune 91, will stand and sing praise. <laughs> 